welcome back to the 130th episode of the Twin Geek Cast. I'm here with David. This is Calvin, editor-in-chief of the Twin Geeks. We're co-editor-in-chief, so we have our co, own podcast. And I'm, I'm just as important. Though. I, need, I need to do more editing lately. Yeah. Life has kind of swept us all up, I think, recently. I mean, that's why we weren't here last week. Uh, well, should we just go over it? I... Sure, just briefly. Why? Like the... <laughs> The the tragic uh, calamity of events that led to a, a delay and and uh, all that. I was at a Seven Eleven corner store, the closest store to my house, and I walked in. I was checking out, just uh, getting cigarettes and a bunch of water. And uh, two gals were fighting next to me, so I'm like, "Oh, I'm just going to walk back to the edge of the store, go get some ice cream for the girls." Um, I realized they're having a fist fight now, so I run back to the register. I'm like, is everything okay? Let's let's get me checked out. I need to get back home. And then uh, this uh, guy pulls up in a truck. He, he comes out, and he's uh, – it's kind of like a flash, but he's holding the gun up, and, and everyone's like, gun, gun. And I'm like, okay, I need to get out of here. Like, I'm still trying to get to the door and get away or something. Um, then this – I don't know. It's weird, like that instinct when you have a gun pointed right at you, and he's obviously trying to break up the fight. Maybe he knows one of them. Um, maybe it's a, a insidious relationship. It looks pretty uh, difficult. Whatever's going on in there. There's food scattered all over the floor now. Um, I have a bit of food like covering my foot. <laughs> I, I've stepped in it trying to get out of the store, and I see the gun. And I'm just like doubling back and dropping to the floor. And then I uh, climb back around the counter, uh, still with my waters and my cigarettes. <laughs> I'm still holding my grocery, of course, because uh, you, you're not really thinking at that point. I'm did, just did you like already pay for it? Sweat. No, no. Um, <laughs> okay. So I brought it into the back, and and I have taken the cigarettes despite not uh, paying for it. And I, I've gone to the back, and we're. Um, I realized that everyone's like ducking behind shit. And I'm like, why am I walking upright? There's a guy with a gun like in the store. And I'm just like, oh yeah, I'm just walking to the back like a normal person, like nothing's happening. So I, I duck into the back behind this uh, uh, stack of waters with this girl. And then um, we realized the manager closed himself behind the door. So we run up and we start pounding on it after like 10 seconds. He lets us in and we're just kind of sheltered in there while this guy has gone out with these girls and they seem to still be fighting. We have the CCTV camera whatever you call those the the security camera mm-hmm. of the store so we're watching them and we're watching it play out and uh, he's trying to like get into the back at some point we're calling uh someone called the police i'm not a police caller but uh, uh someone must have done that uh, eventually the guy scatters but it was like a, a life death situation all i thought was like uh, can i see my daughter and uh, besides that she was sick at that point which meant under those conditions i was obviously going to get sick because i would anyway um, that's, that's just your your nature yeah so um a lot of tumultuous stress including other life stresses that we don't need to get into but a, a bigger yeah, family that, but that's a that's kind of a big one uh yeah. <laughs> and it, it was definitely an interesting uh well yeah and you, you kind of contacted us at the the site at the same time while it was going on and very surreal to kind of watch it play out but we're very very thankful that you made it out all right uh Although the the stress of the the situation is certainly uh, understandable there, and then again with with you getting sick right after, and then interrupting our trip to to hang out together. I know I'm very <laughs> bummed out about that. I, yeah, I wanted more than anything to come down with you guys, but we we will we will get together. But God 
damn it, it was just it was like just the right timing that you had to miss it. You know, if it wasn't were... like a full on vomiting sick, if I could have held down some popcorn and really sat through the movie, I think I I think it would have been doable. I'm, yeah. I'm very sorry I couldn't be there though. It's it's okay. It's okay. We had a good time still. Uh, yeah. despite you not being there. But I, I did leave an empty seat next to you when we were at the movie. <laughs> oh. I, I looked over to it occasionally. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, I mean, between all that and then now I'm in California, so I had travel ahead. I needed to really recover as quick as I could. Um, still got a cough, so if I'm uh, a little bit nasally or congested, that's that'll be why. It'll just be like a normal episode now. It'll just sound normal because I'm sick. But we're happy that you're you're still here you're feeling better and that we can get together again for a good old episode of the Twin Geeks cast with lots of interesting movie centric discussions to be had. And you know how you could tell that I'm better is that we're doing for one thirty we're doing an anime episode, all anime, and I've brought <laughs> uh Evangelion three point zero plus one point zero, thrice upon a time, the best titled movie of the year, um, potentially the best movie of the year, uh, certainly the best animated movie of the year. I don't even see a competition. Maybe that uh, Mad Gods eventually has a shot at that, uh, but better than Luca. Uh, so that puts it at first place. You know, you know, sometimes we look at older movies like, like you know, you know, he walked with crime or, or, or some like ridiculous title like that. Yeah from like the thirties. Uh, and we think that's stupid, but now you've got bullshit like this. And, and I think we got no legs to stand on when it comes to criticizing, you know, older films like that. Is it partly charming though? When kingdoms hearts calls its game two fifty eight point two plus, uh, HD. No, 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 memory. it's just, it's just charming? confusing. It's just confusing it and unnecessary anyone. and nonsensical. And I think even the hardest of hardcore Kingdom Hearts fans don't like it. <laughs> but I feel like these rebuilds are naturally confusing anyway. I feel like they're uh, not going to make sense. A clean title might not. Um, maybe it needs an intimidating title that would uh, push away the uh, the plebs, the casuals. Uh, it, cer- it certainly has pushed me away because I know nothing about this series, despite the prevalence of you and, and others imbibing in, in this Kool-Aid here. Well, the Neon Genesis Evangelion is almost a separate thing from Evangelion, which will be the rebuild series. So you have to take like the first 26 episodes and uh, end of Evangelion. And those are like their own thing with a, a hard ending. And these are somewhat a remake of those that go on to a different ending. So uh, 1.0 would be essentially the first six episodes of the series and it doesn't make any drastic changes it's just a cut a different cut of the uh, series with new animations a lot sharper animations uh, but the the original animated stuff is so great already it's it's hard to tell what you know what really needed to be improved at that point i mean it's a straight 10 out of 10 for me the whole series and end of evangelion none of the rebuilds are you know close to that they, they get great i think the i think the second one is really great because it uh it takes like the emotional heart of uh character interactions and then you get to spend more time with them and it uh allows them to sit and just like play piano and talk about what it means to remake something it talks about how you keep making something over and over again and uh shinji asks his friend he's like uh how do you get good at the piano he's like you play the notes until they sound better than the notes could possibly sound together. You put these things together and you keep redoing it until it makes perfect sense to you. And it doesn't matter what anyone else hears. Once you play it in a way that feels comfortable to you, that's when you release something. So that's why I feel like 
the rebuilds are a reflection of. But then by two and three, uh, three called, um, what is it? Evangelion 3.0, you cannot redo uh, because it is a redo of the movie. Um, naturally, that's what Anno would call it. Um, well, by that point, he's gone way off the plot. I mean, the it's not even doing essentially the same uh, plot line as uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion at that point. Evangelion is its own thing, and it's doing its own thing. I mean, it's still like a kaiju um, battle with like tense um, religious themes, a lot of deep religious themes and philosophical themes, and it still has that underpinning. But I think it becomes more of an action franchise at that point, and it's still very interesting, still very good, still, I think, the best anime content of that type that must exist better than like the the Gundams and the Macrosses which I were beloved to me as a as a kid so that was a a big entry point for me um uh, yeah I really grew up on like the Macrosses and I thought that I I was pretty distant from anime but the more I look into it and what like dad core anime would be like the um Outlaw Star Big O Cowboy Bebop Neon Justice Evangelion the Gundam Wings the Macrosses um the Samurai Champloos uh the Bacano, those are those are the only ones I've seen, but they they all like stand out in my mind as these are really good things. So, you, you know, I, you like to give me a lot of shit sometimes for for having grown up watching a handful of animes on on like you know American television and stuff, but I don't know like half the words you just said there, uh, you know, because I left that life behind a long time ago, and it's, it's always. It's always interesting because you dip in and out of these these anime phases because you just become like a full on anime expert for like a few months and then you just like throw it all away and act like you you've never associated with it in your life. In so it's, two weeks, I'll never have heard of an anime. Uh, ironically, <laughs> you'll you'll condemn it entirely and 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 spin on the practice whole wholeheartedly. I, like a month ago, I was like, "You guys are really watching Yu Gi Oh." That's sad. We were we were watching German dubs of Yu-Gi-Oh not too long ago, <laughs> just for the, the the nostalgia sake of it, and and so I could try and get a grip on on the language a lot better. It was like, yeah, that's really sad. You guys are doing that. I wouldn't spend my time doing that. Then I spent about a hundred <laughs> hours the last week either researching or watching Evangelion Wait. while I was sick. Way more. I think we only got like ten episodes into Yu-Gi-Oh. We need to okay. get back on that. I think. I mean, there's only the four movies that I watch, right? Like, I mean, these might compartmentalize 26 episodes of a series plus a spinoff movie and a death and rebuild uh, movie, but um, it's it's hard to follow. And then we have that huge gap between 3.0 and 4.0, which is a movie that just came out. Uh, Anna went and made Shin Godzilla in the meantime, uh, which we'll get to on the, uh, the Kaiju cast eventually, uh, which is maybe my favorite Godzilla, don't tell Steven. Because um, <laughs> I like the animalistic nature of that Godzilla and how it's really a horror creature and how the puppetry really works toward like a horror effect. Um, and I like the the social commentary and I like Anno because of Neon Justice Evangelion. Um, I think he's one of the best creators. So. Uh, but then, then 4.0, it's like this thing that was supposed to come out, what, like a year and a half ago now and it was supposed to come out for like 10 years before that. So it's like a long-term passion project. And it's Anno saying, like, let's turn back to the real world. Like, we've spent a long time in this created universe, but how can we make the Evangelion universe finally reflect our own? How can I bring that into, like, parity with with what you're actually experiencing and make it meaningful to you after 25 years of following this franchise? Um, it is like a plea to, like, come back to it. And 
every time some new Evangelion comes out or it's reintroduced, there's always a huge, like, uh, just a huge fury around that, like, online. Like, we waited so long. Um, it was only, what, like, a year ago, a year and a half ago, that we actually had uh, formidable access, um, unless you lived in Japan or had a LimeWire. I don't know how you watched that show for a long time. Um, so very grateful that it is accessible and that it's becoming more accessible and that the it's finally finished. Like, there's there's literally nowhere else it could go. I mean, this deconstructs the anime to to the point that maybe someone else could carry it out, but Anno is done forever. So uh, that that sits heavily with me as a, like a final mode. I think it will end up being the best animation of the year just because there's only Mad Gods I'm looking forward to, and I don't know if I'll see it in short order. So we'll see. I think there'll be an interesting theme of this episode: the the finality and like the the accessibility and rediscovery of uh, certain you know classic texts. I, guess I could even yeah, I mean, I could even say like Metropolis, which I could get into later, might have like aesthetic ramifications on what it means to make Evangelion. I mean, I could go that far. Aesthetic ramifications on everything. It's, yeah, it does. We'll, we'll everything see. that's sci-fi and influenced by this kind of theology, I think, yeah, you could might might just draw a straight line back. Um, there's also something like a like a Miyazaki feeling to uh, this last Evangelion where Shinji just goes into a village and he's just kind of living life. And uh, one of the gals who pilots the Ava, she's uh, kind of just working in a field, realizing what it means to be human and feel emotions. I mean, it has like that, that Blade Runner or uh, maybe Metro uh, subtext in it um, about what it means to be machines and working for like this uh, secret government and um, very, very climactic action. But I think the real heart of the movie is just like this 50, 40 minutes in the, in the fields and living in this quiet village and very Ghibli-esque and very, very nice and really the sweetest thing I've seen in animation in a long time. So I really loved it. Um, I, I loved all of it. Uh, the only ever thing I don't love is, I mean, 1.0, which is just the recut. So everything mm-hmm. else I think is solid enough and warrants the strongest recommendation. Well, I'd just like to say that I'm generally supportive of, of your <laughs> anime fixation whenever it crops up, you know, despite the, the inconsistencies in your in your praise and demur. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy that you've had this nice journey with this series that makes no sense to me. That's <laughs> just because we're not talking about Stein, Semicolon, Gate. Um, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't be that supportive if I just described that show, I think. Yeah, probably not. I think I've got a little bit of context from from outside of it, but uh, stay positive this episode. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's Uh, good stuff. I'll probably get to like a write up or something on Stein semicolon gate, or I won't because I don't like semicolons. Um, Find Mm -hmm. out. Well, uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, at least you're you're able to bring it here and get some of this uh, enthusiasm out in the world. But I do hope you write about it too. I think that would be very interesting. Finally, someone who's enthusiastic about anime to the point of exclusion of other social um, contracts. That's never happened before. Never. (laughs) Otaku, uh, the otaku geeks. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, speaking of uh, Japanese crimes, I guess, uh, I I have some some more uh, World War II content to talk about this week. Oh, you do? Yeah, but actually not about Japan, more about Germany. but more specifically about the, the American interaction with it and its connection to the movies. Uh, for, for those who 
actually listen to us and don't just go on a, you know, one episode basis and then drop us for, you know, an indeterminate amount of time, as Thank I you. imagine most people do. Thank you as well. Yes, uh, you may remember a while back me during my documentary discourse corner talking about uh, the Netflix series uh, Five Came Back, which was about um, five Hollywood directors, uh, John Ford, uh, George Stevens, John Huston, William Wyler, and Frank Capra, and their experiences uh, leaving the industry and working for uh, propaganda units and, you know, uh, documentary units in uh, World War II. Well, it was, of course, based on a book, a book that I just recently finished reading. Sweet. And uh, it was quite an excellent book, one of the, the best I've read for, uh, you know, ho Hollywood history and such, particularly in the depths to which it goes for each um, director and their role in, in the war and the different uh, ways in which they, they covered it and the films and their careers both before and after. Uh, what I especially like about it is how the stories lend themselves to a you know particular arc. Uh, and how it covers you know all sorts of different facets of the war, from Ford getting in early and being there for the Battle of Midway and capturing that, to uh, Capra overtaking the entirety of the propaganda unit and producing all of the training films, and uh, kind of leading up to very you know a climactic ending in which Capra and uh, William Wyler go head to head in releasing their first post-war film, and how radically different the best years of our lives is versus It's a Wonderful Life, and seeing. Yeah. Which which one will kind of triumph in a in a post war uh, interest? I've been seeing you watching the propaganda films, and I'm very interested. I just haven't been able to engage with 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 yeah. what you're doing there yet. So. Well, now now you can because this is what I watched them for. I, I watched a handful of the uh, propaganda films that the directors um, made during the war uh, to kind of cover both the the book and just the general documentary discourse that I like to bring here on a weekly basis. And um, of those three, I watched uh, John Huston's report from the Aleutians, kind of, because um, I fell asleep watching it. It was very boring. <laughs> it was very, <laughs> okay. it, 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 it was, it was very kind of just like bog standard, you know, uh, stuff. You know, not a whole lot like worth documenting. I felt uh, from what I did see and then heard about afterwards, kind of skimmed through later. Um, you know, just like bunch of you know army boys hanging around the base doing daily stuff at a remote you know base in alaska you love to see it yeah uh you know kind of a name voiceover describing things it, it really wasn't all that noteworthy to me uh i also watched uh john ford's battle of midway which was of course as i mentioned the actual footage he shot during the attack uh, on the base um, there, the first uh, kind of big triumphant um, Pacific victory for, for the U.S. forces. And uh, it is interesting from a historical perspective, but as a documentary, I think very poor and attempting to be emotionally manipulative. There's a voiceover added on from Jane Darwell and Henry Fonda, who starred yes. in Ford's Grapes of Wrath. And it's really like this, this cloying, like trying to pull at your heart dreams, like, oh, you know, you know, let's uh, go look after our boys there and, and yeah. that kind of bullshit. Uh, and it's, you know, kind of drowned out by overly patriotic music kind of thrown on throughout and just like the, the kind of worst things you expect from like World War II propaganda films. Uh, and, and otherwise just like really uninteresting. Even the footage, uh, of course, because it's inherently messy, um, it, it doesn't feel like you get a whole lot from it. I didn't emotionally connect with it in any way. Like I didn't feel no, nothing. 
the the destruction from that one again like interesting in a formal way uh i was glad that it was much shorter than report from the illusions do you think propaganda can work on you do you think propaganda can work on anyone right now who's who's an educated very aware audience do you think that would still work making them yeah yeah i i I think it can it depends because propaganda comes in all forms and ways you know i talked about uh you know i wrote a whole piece about how I think Casablanca is a very convincing form of propaganda and it was effective in its time. And I think it's effective today as well in, in how it uses the the story. Um, you know, propaganda documentary films, you know, a little, little harder, but I think uh, it was well done in the case of the third one I watched, which was William Wyler's uh, The Memphis Bell Story of Flying Fortress, which was, um, I think, much better structured than any of these. It had a very clear through line in which it followed a, a single bombing mission of this uh, particular plane going uh, from a, an airbase in uh, London, uh, I believe it was, or, or somewhere in the lower uh, Great Britain area, over to bombing a uh, German uh, military base. And, um, you know, it, it kind of laid out all the flight plans with the, the, the whole scouting of it there with all the different other groups um, Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and the distraction run that they were making, how they were, they would divert all of the German uh, forces so that they gave the clearest path for the uh, the B seventeens to go and bomb the base. And you get a sense from preparing for the flight to the actual mission, seeing the bombing, and then on the way back, and then the post mission kind of relief and all that. You got the real sense of how it all felt, and it was structured well. It wasn't overly inundated with like rah rah patriotic bullshit. There was like w- one moment I felt like where it's like okay they're they're putting a lot of blame on the German people here <laughs> for this like they're saying these are our enemies the people I'm like eh, that's kind of what you expect yeah yeah, yeah. well that that's that a uh, manipulation kind of deal there was an interesting facet in the book uh, I'll say in which uh, they kind of went over the struggle with how they 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 figured out in terms of Capra's uh, training film propaganda that they wanted to largely put the blame and, and, you know, demonize Hitler as opposed to the German people because they understood that they would have to work with the the people afterwards and, and reconstructing yeah. Germany and stuff. But they struggled especially with Japan and how to characterize them because Makes they sense. knew that they couldn't, they wouldn't necessarily be deposing the emperor. So they didn't want to lay it at uh, his, his feet entirely, right. but they, they also didn't, didn't want to overpraise Evangelion or something. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But um, Memphis Bell, I thought, was very well done. The, the, the voiceover was was well recorded. I felt like they, they did a good job. Uh, one of the handy facets of it was that because they didn't record any audio for it, it was all kind of done in post-production. So the narration they provided kept uh, like dialogue to, to a minimum, and they kind of imposed that onto the people afterwards um, by, by bringing in some of the actual people who were, who were flying the, the missions and, and getting them to... Uh, lend voice to to what they voiced during you know the mission. One one of the more interesting facets I found was seeing the the individual characteristics of all the planes and the crews before they get on. Like there's a short montage of them. You see all of the planes with the the different names and the pinups they you know kind of draw on the sides of their planes and stuff. Like you know That's the right. Detroit Memphis yeah. Bell and such, and and getting all the feeling of that. And then when they come back, uh, and and you can see all of the destruction wrought on the planes. All the bullet holes, all the, you know, tail fins that are kind of shot up, some of which look more like they had like bites taken out of them than they were actually shot. It looks like they came back from fighting monsters. 
That's which cool. was interesting. Yeah. And and seeing the destruction, like the giant holes in like the cockpit and such, and, and being able to identify the, the planes you saw in the beginning, you know, it gave it a sense of reality more so that, you know, sure. these were, you know, people who, who were, you know, attacked, they, you know, they, they came back by the skin of their teeth. Mm-hmm. And the, the overall presentation of it, you know, again, was, was very informative uh, without being, you know, just instructional. Uh, I, you know, I found it very well communicated and interesting the whole way through. And, and you got to see the sense of destruction, not only on the planes, but on the, the, uh, the German, uh, site as well. You see, seeing the bombs dropping was, was interesting and, and kind of realizing the detachment of that and not getting a sense of the, you know, intent of, you know, uh, destruction there while also seeing its after effects. I, I think that resonated with me. Uh, at least I, I don't know if that was the intent of the, the documentary, of course, because you know, yeah, it's a nebulous, you know, enemy force that you're attacking. But I got the sense, like watching it, you know, from a detached perspective, I was like, this definitely feels like I'm not getting that sense of this is affecting real people, yeah. and and that in and of itself, you know, kind of informs how you know how making that decision to attack people is easier. Because you don't have that immediate connection when you drop those bombs. Absolutely. That one sounds very worthwhile, the Wilder one. Yeah, it's called uh, the Memphis Bell again. And that one is, as far as like, uh, when I think of an ideal, like World War II propaganda documentary, I'm like, this does what I would want one of these to do. This is is like the sense from... That's what you're looking for. Yeah. And again, like I, you know, it, it doesn't feel you know, corrupted necessarily by the need for, you know, patriotic demonizing of, of enemies and such. It felt more objective than most anything else I'd, I'd seen, which doesn't surprise me, um, given Weiler's uh, take again. Like, Ford, obviously, he just went, like, full, you know, nationalism, <laughs> like, after the war and was really affected. And that's an interesting thing in the book that kind of covers, too, because he was really... Uh, uh, more of a, you know, social supporter, you know, he was a big FDR supporter and a a Democrat before the war. And then afterwards, yeah, yeah, afterwards, he takes a hard right. He just completely changes ideologies. And it's a really interesting, like, trajectory and and hard to get your mind around for someone like him. Again, the same guy who makes Grapes of Wrath, you know, goes on and do a lot of that in that show, by the way, is someone once more of us talking about um, Ford and his politics. Yeah. And of course, there's also a, a Stevens trajectory. I think uh, I, I, I wish I, I'd seen some of his stuff before for the documentary stuff because he was there during a lot of the liberations of the concentration camps, particularly mm-hmm. Dachau. And his trajectory as a director is another one that's kind of fascinatingly covered in the book, in which before the war, he was this really lauded, appreciated, light, lighthearted comedy director and, and like musical director. He did like the most beloved Fred Astaire film. And he did a really great, uh, you know, pre-war comedy uh, with Joel McRae and uh, Gene Arthur called The More Barrier that he was really praised for. And then after the war, he's just like entirely jaded and, and cynical, has no interest in making comedies ever again. And he does really terrific dramas like Shane, you know, uh, which, you know, is really like a great allegory for, you know, the Fantastic. destruction yeah. of, you know, and, and violence. And he also does A Place in the Sun, which <laughs> yeah. is another, you know, both episodes we cover, which are just re- truly, really great films. Absolutely. So it's really, really interesting to see how he transformed. How about the, the how about the book, uh, The Five Came Back versus like the Netflix special? The book um, goes into a lot more detail, as as you would kind of expect, and I think mm-hmm. covers their history 
even more so. I would say the Netflix series is a good representation of the book. It covers the kind of general uh, overview of, of the war and all of them, you know, you know, greatly again, in the sense that you get, you know, their history and their work before the war, during and after. And that's all really well communicated, including the the different arcs and the different kind of competitions you see, like I alluded to. But the book is just more detailed in every facet, particularly in terms of the productions of the films, both before and after the war. I think it's really well detailed and really interesting. And I think it's a really great textbook for these five uh, filmmakers during this period of time, this, you know, lengthy and important period of time, uh, covering both those facets and their work, you know, their documentary work, which has obviously been more overlooked recently. Uh, and, and the book is really great at highlighting that, which is still an integral and informative part of their filmography. These directors certainly didn't differentiate their war work from their Hollywood work uh, when they made it. You know, they committed just as much as they saw it as just as important, if not more important than the narrative works they did in Hollywood. Fantastic. I might pick up a book because I like that Netflix special. Uh, Absolutely. I'm interested in big, big recommendation for the book. It just it covers so much and it's so informative and a really, you know, well-structured read. I, I was interested in it from page one all the way to the end. And I've listened to and read a lot of books on, on Hollywood history in the past year or so. And this one is, is probably in the top five, top three, maybe. Uh, I love it. I love it when you get excited excited about historical documents and bring us some context for them. So thank you. Um, yeah, I have a, I have another new thing. Should we should we do one more and then get to? Yeah, soon? yeah, because yeah. I'll give you even more historical information there. <laughs> I'll go quickly on this. It's CODA, which um, stands for Child of Deaf Deaf Adults. So it's uh, about a child of a deaf family. Um, two adults and her brother are all deaf. Um, so the onus is kind of on her. They have they have a fishing business, and she kind of signs for them and translates to to the fishermen. They want to start their own um, ability to sell the fish because they keep getting screwed over by the the people who buy their fish off the shore. So it's a New England story. Uh, you could think like Manchester by the Sea, but for like a coming of age um, young adult drama, it, it does a lot of that like young adult bullshit, but it wraps it together in such a such a really nice and like sentimental lens that that I'm kind of able to (laughs) accept things that I shouldn't in these movies that I would know practically in my mind are not okay for me to like critically um, be vibing with. I'd be like, um, there are things I should pick apart is what I'm saying, but I don't because it's so well presented and it's so well preserved on the screen. This was the favorite out of this year's Sundance and um I don't know if it has like an awards contender streak or anything in it. I, I mean, it, it does seem like a high school movie elevated uh, to be a, an acceptable film. Um, I did love it. Uh, we communicate a lot with Ezra in a little bit of sign language, and I've always thought it was very important. Um, Sound of Metal meant a lot to me last year, uh, that addiction story. I could relate less to this, I think, uh, because I'm not in choir. Um, it's it's about the girl's choice. <laughs> oh, it's, it's about a choir thing? Maybe this is right up my alley. Yeah, there's a lot of music in it, and uh, she's trying to do a, do a duet on a Marvin Gaye song, um, You're All I Need, but there's a boy in choir. It's about her choosing um, to honor her voice and her passion for her voice when uh, nobody's ever heard her sing. Like uh, She only sings around her family on the boat while she's putting on the music. And she's an excellent singer, but nobody's ever heard her. So she's very shy. And that's like the high school musical part of it all. It's like that magical like journey. Like, oh, nobody's heard this like special um, embedded talent in her. 
but she's such a wonderful singer and um, kind of about her path with this boy, trying to figure that out and what that means with the deaf family and how they could support her. Um, like them showing up to her shows while she's in choir and uh, obviously not being able to hear her, but just the support um, made my wife and I cry at least four times. So uh, I think Coda is probably good. Um, uh, there are part of me, there's a part of me that's wanting to say, Oh, it's just like an extension of the average coming of age high school movie that uh, just is about like the exterior life. But, um, but I think there's a lot of internal value in there too. I think there's a lot of uh, what it means to kind of relate to a family and, to choose your own path eventually uh, she wants to get into the berkeley school of music and uh, she wants to do it through choir and her choir teachers kind of supporting those goals so i think this will be a movie people will watch in like the next eight years like like i think coda if it weren't on apple tv if it were on netflix or in theaters i think it would be a big splash i i think coda deserves more than it's getting i i really like it and i really like her in it um um i'm spacing our name amelia jones i think she's really good in it um i I'm kind of curious how Apple TV is doing in, in comparison to the others. Cause I, I feel like it's like the more obscure, like again, everyone's got HBO now, of course, so there's yeah. no issue with that. But Apple TV is such a, I don't know, like, I, I guess a smaller brand comparatively. I can't, I don't know if it's smaller. Like, I mean, I kind of just have it on my TV because I have all Apple products everywhere. Like everything's I mean, I, integrated, right? But I do too, but I don't have the Apple, don't have TV, Apple TV. So I, so I don't have Apple TV. Otherwise I would, cause they have some interesting looking shows, I'll admit, but yeah, I just, they do. I don't, I don't have they, the spoons to go to and, and like, you know, pay for it. <laughs> they kind of feel like what, uh, like HBO or maybe AMC was doing 10 years ago. I mean, they kind of feel like that prestige TV that's kind of often doesn't require like advertising and it's not structured around traditional TV. Uh, for All Mankind was an interesting like historical show. They had the, uh, the one about the, um, the, the morning show was, was interesting current, uh, M. Night Shyamalan had a really good show on there. Uh, the Servant, I think it was called. That was that was great, actually. They, the they, have, they, they have one. That you, you have to check it out for me and tell me if it's any good. Have you seen any of the ads for Schmigadoon yet? <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's, uh, so it's it's a it's a rip like on on the Broadway show from the forties called Brigadoon, uh, which is about um, uh, these hikers that get lost in the woods and end up in this like. Fan, fantastical place that only shows up every hundred years or oh, so wow. or something, okay. and it's like this weird. Pl- anyway, that's the that's the Broadway show. It's a musical, but in the show Schmigadoon, which has a uh, uh, Keegan Michael Key is, is one of the stars. I know I can't remember oh. who else, but uh, right. and and they, and it's a similar setup where they come across you know this place you know all on a hiking trip, but instead everyone is like they're in a 1930s musical. <laughs> it's like that. Like everyone thinks they're in the 1930s or 40s musical. Is, that is sounds what the up setup apparently is exactly, exactly. But I just I don't have it in me to like pay for it to to to, to check it out yet necessarily. I need someone to scope it out and tell me if it's worth watching. I feel like this is like the two week stretch that people would be subscribed to Apple TV because the second season of Ted Lasso just came back, which is a fantastic, that's, maybe one of the best shows so far. That's the week. other thing I'm really interested in because I'm, I'm a huge it's supporter good. of Bill Lawrence as a creator. Oh yeah, I think, I think yeah. you'd like Ted Lasso. I mean, everyone really seems to like this, which is good because uh, you know he, he's had a little bit of a, a, a drier streak. I think I don't know. He's he's had plenty of popular shows, of course, over time, but this one seems to really be taken off form, and everyone really loves it. So I love the form. sincerity of it. I, I feel like TV comedy was for so long was just about like irony, which uh, you know it could be empty after a while watching The Office, and I'm kind of glad we're over that phase of Parks and Rec in The Office, and that. Uh, 
uh, mockumentary style. I'm glad it, we're it having some sincere, yeah, sincere heartfelt comedy is in right now. So mm-hmm. that's great. All right. You- you're selling me a little bit more. You've got like the the, the one hook. I'm you know I've got there. I'm, <laughs> well, you know, they, I'm very close. I'm very close to doing it, but I'm I'm so apprehensive because I want to. I don't want to give my money to all these people. <laughs> they also have Wolf Walkers, the best animated movie of the is last that one on years. Apple? Yeah, it I is. didn't realize. Mm, mm. <laughs> that makes it sweeter, doesn't it? Because uh, Cartoon Saloon are the best animators right now, in my opinion. But. You're, yeah, you're giving me a lot of incentive, and I feel like <laughs> Apple needs to do a better job at advertising itself. Because I'm, I mean, I'm doing it for them. I know, I know, but you're not getting paid to. At least, like, come on, we need to call up Apple and get you like a, a you know, some kind of contract for for all this free ad you're giving them. Mythic Quest, really good show about video game development on Apple Plus. Um, all right. I, th- I think it's a service you should subscribe to for like one month a year currently. I think it's one of those where they, it's not like they have regular content, but all their content's good. The the other problem is like with a lot of the shows, it's just like, I just struggling to find the time still. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe I will. Maybe I will. I, you know, cause I need a new show to watch it. Night, yeah, I'll do you know, a Tev Lasso podcast if you do it. So uh, we'll see. All right. Let me, let me, let's take a break and I'll deliberate that. <laughs> You know, I'll gotta consult my 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 finances here to see if I can squeeze it in. <laughs> yeah, just find a trial. It's I mean, it's you only need it for a month. I think it'll be fine. All right, I'll come I'll come back with the decision a little bit here. Um, until then, uh, we're uh, taking blast of the past with uh, what is it the two thousand three anime uh, metro. <laughs> Hold on, I was I was serious about the break. The time, the near future, the place. The most advanced civilization on the planet. The occasion. A celebration of progress and technology. Prepare yourself for Metropolis, the most spectacular anime in motion picture history. Do you like the, the cream soda better than the root beer? Um, this one's like a zero sugar. Oh, okay. It looked like a cream soda. A, a rare right a zero sugar root beer. Ah, uh, okay. A rare sodi on the cast. Do you call them pop sodies, sodas? Uh, I, I think they call them pops over across the pond there. I call them pops. Um, pops for pop. Yeah. Anyway, I hope you uh, use some of that terrific score for the uh, the re-release there, the the restoration uh, over yeah. our break. Absolutely. For the, the interim there because it's transcendent um i mean interesting a re-release of a 2001 anime um <laughs> yeah I, I have the i have the chibi score is chibi a style music too i don't i don't know anything about that anime by the way i just i sent it to you yesterday because you're on this anime bender i was going and... to watch it until i found out there's really no relation i was hoping it would be like an anime it just happens to yeah. to share the name because metropolis is kind of a general name for big futuristic cities i'm sure it has some some link because as we alluded uh metropolis's influence is kind of all reaching it would be hard to make this sci-fi anime without without i think it's hard to make a sci-fi anything without (laughs) like considering metropolis in in the larger context of things it's just it's a titan it's a titan of cinema even if you don't know you are i think well if you're influenced by blade runner then you're probably influenced by metropolis already yeah because because blade runner takes huge huge inspiration from metropolis and i would say similarly with like 
Akira, Akira's uh, yeah. obviously got some ties so, there. So obviously Neon Genesis too. There's our connection. Um, yep. Everything. If if you're dealing with like dystopian future settings, like Metropolis is your is your starting point. You so, can look back further probably, but like Metropolis kind of just like stands out as as far as everything because it was so big at, at at the time and like and it was one of the you know only like feature film representations of uh sci-fi at that time period uh particularly in in this kind of dystopian sci-fi future sci-fi kind of sense uh it was just it was it was kind of monolithic despite not doing very well in its time (laughs) (laughs) well what i found is that uh society never demands art there's never a demand for art it always has to come later if it's a artistic so uh, we we demand social change and the movies that have that will become classics eventually Mm -hmm. i think the and that's one of the most interesting things to me about metropolis which i uh, i want to detail a bit more after we talk about the movie itself is this fascinating trajectory of its history you know being kind of this gargantuan you know most expensive you know film produced you know in germany at the time and then you know, utterly failing, but also managing to, you know, still be a cultural titan, you know, <laughs> despite its, you know, complete flop at, at the time and, you know, then surviving this, you know, mutilation throughout its history and this, you know, kind of like condensed and, you know, ripped up form throughout history until eventually only in the past decade reaching us in a practically complete form. And it's one of those that that feels so big and monolithic even today. I mean, it. it I mean, it's still pressing. It's still big, and it's still as large as it ever was. Um, uh, for me, those old movies that have like thousands of actors in them and thousands of extras, they'll always feel big, and I'll always be impressed. It's not something we do anymore. We'd we'd CG half of them at least. Sure, and that's for practical purposes, and it yeah. and it and it works and it functions, and uh, I think that's the best way to do that when you have it and they certainly would do it at the time if they had it but there's there's definitely always something even even more impressive about you know corralling thousands of people at at once you know like even even children. though children i mean i guess i don't know like the politics of doing that at that time but uh questionable questionable yeah. for sure but um you know it's it's still impressive <laughs> it, it still really plays i mean i'm still greatly impressed by it and uh, my admiration for it's really big and my admiration for fritz lang is really big I, i'm worried that i'll not have very much specifically to say uh, because for me it does fit into a context of all the sci-fi movies i've ever seen because all of them have pulled from it so it is like an amalgamation of everything i've ever seen and <laughs> in, in a really impressive way that i can't be like anything less than this is a perfect movie and it stands as a monolithic tone for all movies no, I think that's a really interesting thing as well is that it, you, whenever you approach film, a uh, film with such a reputation as this, you know, that has such a, an iconic status in, in the culture. Uh, I think a lot of people generally feel a little, like they, they avoid the film for a while because they feel like they already know it, which, you know, is, is fair. It's, you know, part of the reason why I haven't watched Gone with the Wind yet. Also because it's long. It's good. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's difficult. We'll get I, I know. It's, 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 I'm uh, I'm interested to visit it still. It's just about finding the time. Really, we pretty much point. have to podcast it when you do it because no, neither That's, of us will do it again, right? I yep. think the one time we both watch it might be the last time. So. How how many times are you going to watch a four hour movie uh, in, in one sitting like that? I don't know. This one is fortunately not four hours, uh, and you know it's, it's only recently gained a, a, a lengthy 
you know, runtime. I think that's what's most interesting too, that it's so long buried and that it's emerged mostly as a modern document that maybe like the generation of filmmakers before the current ones didn't see it properly. Yeah. Again, the whole history of its reception, again, this and, and the idea of its form now that we viewed it in specifically, uh, or, or, you know, more specifically, you did uh, for, for our first time viewing to see the near complete version is not the majority of the history of it. You know, our perception of the film is very different than what it was for, you know, what, like the 80 odd years of its lifespan, you know, prior to to the discovery. You watched but, the uh, Giorgio <laughs> Morador? I, I watched both. I watched both this time because we, we had enough time to kind of cover both. But I did watch that out of curiosity. But I, I want to talk about it in comparison after we kind of go over the film itself. But yeah, uh, this was your first time with it, was it not? Yeah, it was a um, long time coming, and it's always kind of sat there at the back of my mind. So I've just been waiting for us to have a podcast slot. So I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought it to us because, un, un, you know, surprisingly, you you brought this one to me, and I was <laughs> o- over the moon about it about talking about it because this is one of my favorite films, one of the most kind of transcendent cinematic experiences I had when I first watched it. Um, you know, I saw it for, for the first time and I just, uh, the, I, I literally like never took my eyes off the screen, which is not, not always the case when I watch movies at home, it's easy to get yeah. distracted, but I was, I was glued and transfixed and I really could not recall such an, you know, like an affecting cinematic experience prior to that, you know, in, in, in such a, you know, magnetic kind of way. And then later that year, that same year, uh, two years ago, I had the the privilege, the honor to go see it in the theater with a live organ accompaniment. I can't even imagine. Um, it it was its own magnificent experience. Uh, the the score was obviously different um, than the or- orchestral arrangement that was you know originally. Was it a band from... that was that was touring it? Plastic no, something? No, no, no. no it, okay. it was it was it was an organ uh, accompaniment. Um, you know, as I kind of talked about before, that the Hollywood theater did on a monthly okay, basis organ. they would do. Yeah, so it was, it was it was a completely different arrangement, uh, but it was his own. You know, it was very good in its own right and very appropriate for the film. And I think that's another interesting angle that I'll talk about with the Giorgio Moroder version as well. These different interpretations and how music can you know shift or alter a silent film in, in varying and in drastic ways. Um, but definitely, I've I've found the most effective version I've seen to be the you know original orchestral arrangement that was done for the film on its initial release release that was then recorded and released for this 2010 um, restoration, which has 98 percent of of the film now. There's only like mm-hmm. two brief scenes that are missing that are kind Do of informed by what's text. Missing? Yeah, yeah, because there's there's text on the screen that kind of tells oh, yeah. you there's a scene where. Freighter goes and, and like has a conversation with a monk about something and, and that's lost. And then a big fight with a uh, Rotvang on the, the top of the the tower that's missing. And that's probably the more dramatic one that's kind of missing. You miss uh, a little bit of uh, context in terms of, Oh, okay. Their, their fight is resolved. That's unfortunate, but that's, it's literally just a product of the film doesn't exist. So I also saw this in a sick fever dream, which is a great way to see <laughs> Metropolis, I think. But it also means that I'll owe it um, a less sick uh, watch where I'm more. Um, I mean, I just think just that an appreciation watch is worth it, but uh, uh, a more textual watch where I'm like examining it and thinking about it more deeply will will pay pay dividends. I think. 
Absolutely, and I think it's a film that you you know will absolutely reward going back to, and that you'll be excited to to return to, and one that's very easy to to dive into. I don't feel like it's a hard film to approach. If anything, it's very simplistic, uh, and that's like the major yeah. critique with the film is that thematically, it's it's very it, it can be naive even in its own way, especially at the end where it's like oh. We we just have to get the the workers and you know the capitalists together and and everything will be happy <laughs> and that's that that feels a little insincere I guess at the end but I feel like in in the context of the film it, it works for me it, especially framed in this kind of fantasy narrative uh, so to speak here um, you know the the simplicity of the message I think lends itself to the you know grandiose expressionistic style here. Uh, I, I think if you wanted to make it more complex, you would lose a lot of the, you know, the the grandeur and the the uh, easy drive that the film has, the central, you know, core that it can follow through. It, again, the, the whole film is wrapped up in a single message that's repeated literally throughout the film. You know, uh, you know, the, the head and the hands, you know, need a mediator, which is the heart. You know, they can only be connected that way. And again, very simplistic, very straightforward, you know, very obviously delivered throughout. But I find it effective in spite of that. Um, I feel like I feel like if the message could be that simple, then the image could be so much grander and, and do some of the like work for it. And I think the image is so significant and so big that if you overcomplicate the plot, you might uh, distract from what's a... I think you just want to focus what's really going on with the, with the grandeur, as you say, of the screen. There's so yeah. much, so big. Well, and I look at it as a kind of modern fairy tale in lots of ways, which, you know, do have these kind of simplistic moralizing messages, you know, that that are easy to to grasp onto and understand and, and not very complex at all. And so you and it really allows for like the, the fantasy and the otherworldliness of the setting to really take center stage and, you know, exemplify those themes through the, the image. Absolutely. And, and and that's one of the, the biggest and most impressive selling points of Metropolis is that it's just one of the most innovative, visually stunning cinematic films ever made still today. I can't be more excited to look through more Fritz Lang. Also, having only seen M in this, it seems like there's a lot of profound stuff left for me. The Mabuse movies and uh, some of the um, some of his other early works seem seem very interesting yeah. to me. And, and you can tell uh, in, in his later works uh, as well that he has that honed eye from working as a silent film director. And, of course, one of the most prolific ones of the time, you know, even predating this. He has, again, like the, the Dr. Mabusa film. Uh, and that one has, of course, a lot of, you know, huge expressionistic imagery to go with it, uh, as well as some of the more fantasy driven films like uh, Denis Belogan. Um And uh, he, he even did an the prequel to that Netflix movie, the woman in the window. <laughs> yeah. That, that was from his, uh, American noir period. And that's the other interesting thing, this interesting, like hopping of filmography he has, you know, being at the forefront of the German filmmaking industry during, you know, the, the expressionistic period and being a pioneer of that. And then, you know, coming over and being a, you know, chief, uh, proponent of the, you know, film noir with its Germanic influences you know, and really driving, you know, a lot of work of individual talent here stateside and then going back to Germany, you know, later in his career and making those handful of films he did in India as well. And and those, you know, different interests. He's had a, a fantastic and prolific and, you know, singular career. Did we do uh, M already on this no, show? No, okay. no, we haven't done. This is, I think this is the first Fritz Long film we're doing. 
uh, which I'm more than happy for that to be because it's, it still stands as the, the, the Titan of a mall for me, you know, again, just it's, it's everything I love about cinema. I think we've said before (laughs) that I'm, I'm in love with the magic and the trickery, you know, the sleight of hand of of the movies. And I think there, there are a few films that are as sleight of handy as Metropolis. The illusion's so big here. I mean, the uh, there's so many pieces to it, so many sets and constructions, models, and impressive stuff. Oh yeah, and again, like the the impressiveness of how it's pulled off and the innovation of techniques. Like, there's one really fascinating technique that was invented for the film called oh, the, really? the shift. Yeah, it's called the 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 Schuften process. Uh, and basically, how it works is that they have a mirror that they cut a section out of, and they shoot. You know. Uh, they, they use the reflection in the mirror for like a model and the hole has the people in it. So like one, one example is, you know, early on you've got the big factory sequence where the machine literally turns into this, like, you know, uh, like, like tribal, like, like sacrificial, you know, um, you know, uh, monster thing or whatever that they have there. Uh, the way they achieve that shot is that it's a model of the um, temple effectively. And uh, there's a small cutout in the mirror where the people are going up through and into. And so they have it again, like, you know, it's, it's scaled so that you can, you know, the people are properly within the image, you know, and it looks like they're in this giant temple and really they're far off, you know, and it's, you know, shooting through the hole there to see them. And the reflection uh, right behind the camera is the set. It's very which good. Which is a miniature. It's very, very good at creating those those large feeling sets and and like using the modeling to really project like a living city with with full of workers who uh, really have no reprieve. I mean, it feels so mechanical and like oppressive upon them, and, but, and but also what... like celebratory for the people in control. Like, I mean, it feels like it's grand for them. Exactly, and that's one of the the fine lines that the film walks is that it's perfectly demonstrative of, you know, the, the oppressive, you know, work of this, you know, capitalistic system here and, and how the, the back of, you know, like how, how this whole, you know, grand city was built on the backs of exploitation, but also able to demonstrate the glory and the grandeur of, of that result, you know, in these, you know, kind of giant, you know, demonstrations of the city, particularly that shot, you know, that you get with the music at its most triumphant where you first see the city in its full glory with all the cars going by, the planes flying around, everything bustling, which is all, again, some of the best model work in, in any film, you know, uh, to see the, the, the stop motion there and such. Uh, it's it, absolutely incredible and breathtaking and, and really communicates the size of everything here. Well, I've been going through all these kaijus and I'm just so uh, specifically fixated on like building destruction and like the small scale model sets. They're nothing like this. I mean, the ones being made in the seventies uh, and eighties, even with like the, the acclaimed people in the, in the Nerus filmmakers, you're not even seeing this, this exhibition of a uh, grand scale. I mean, of course, those have different aims and uh, goals, but but in something about this is like to make a utopia requires dystopian uh, working rights. I mean, there's a lot. Of, <laughs> there's a lot to really consider in that construction of the city. Yeah, and and, and it would really take a taskmaster like Long to really uh, get such such an incredible vision on the screen there again you know his his practices were were questionable at best you know and and bordering on uh, abusive in in many ways and that was him throughout the career he was you know really like an intensive you know filmmaker and and only you know like like really just had this singular mission for making his vision uh 
and <laughs> often at the sacrifice of you know of, of, of others here. But you know when 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 you see the results, you can't help but be awed by them, despite that. Um, and and I would I would encourage you as well to go look up. There's lots of behind the scene photos for the making yeah. of the film, and there's some really incredible uh, you know like you know seeing the the context of it. Um, one of my favorite shots uh, seeing is uh, there, there's this really fantastic moment that's always stood out to me in the film where the film takes on a, uh, a subjective lens for just like a moment and you see Freighter's hand like reaching out to grab something from the perspective of, of the camera there. You see his hand come around and they have a behind the scenes photo of how they shot that and it's that's right. really incredible because that, that's a moment that's always stood out to me where like the again where the film is innovating you know in, in, in cinematic language and you know implementing all the tools of perspective here and so it's... to switch to that for, for a moment there it it's really, uh, I feel like, one of the more effective moments in the film. It's also showing a rare awareness, a self-awareness of film and making film that doesn't really popularly come into place until, like, the French New Wave. Like the, I mean, just, like, that subjective awareness that you're behind the camera and that you're shooting something and that you're making a movie uh, really doesn't exist in the early Hollywood. Like you say, it's, like, all illusions. And uh, it, it really combines that, like, later tendency to have, like, that fourth wall break and, and an ability to create the these monstrous sets but uh, for me it's also like the bigness of the religious imagery like we have like the tower of babylon and i uh, i was talking about like in my letterbox review like this is the movie you'd like uh, send up and build a tower onto heaven to show god what movies could actually be um and we're looking at like horror of babylon like the from like the revelations and the mother of like all horrors and abominations on earth and uh, we're looking at a lot of really interesting stuff with that women character and What's the actress? She plays a uh, Bridget roles. Helm. God, she's such a, a powerhouse performer here. Uh, really able to to tackle both of those roles just with you know incredible dynamicism. Like the the innocent you know kind of like uh, you know uh, you know mother uh, you know character you know to to the people there. You know she has this real uh, um, you know like sacred you know, you know, view and, and energy to her. And then being able to do a complete 180 on that for the, the corrupted, uh, whore of Babylon, essentially. And it's, and it's yeah. very little, like all they do is they throw on some, some dark eye makeup around her. And then it's all facial performance, just a complete transformation. But you can uh, tell at any point, like what she's doing and how she's playing it. You can always tell exactly which one she is. It's and she's got this, this very twitchy motion to her, especially in her facial expressions. Again, like despite the fact that there's very minimal difference between how the characters are presented uh, visually, the physicality of the performance just really like dictates for you what's going on. You never really lose track, and it's such a, a brilliant and committed physical performance, and it's so Im Im impressive uh, in in terms of the the transformative quality of it. And she really stands out, particularly in in that uh, you know in in the the seductive sequences, uh, the dance, and, yeah, and and and. One thing about that sequence especially is that the montage editing of it, the very rapid cutting of it constantly between that and all of the, 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 the bourgeois, you know, individuals who are being, you know, transfixed by her and manipulated uh, by her, her, you know, society crumbling performance there, cutting back with Freighter and his, you know, apocalyptic, you know, fever dream vision of what's going on and that going with like the, the death imagery all of that being tied together, it's just it's an incredible balancing act of of the edit there and the pacing of that entire sequence. And, I, and again, it, and it goes into the more surreal expressionistic imagery where you get that fusion of like 
eyeballs, you know, for like a moment there on on screen, and I, it's it's just one of the most uh, like like transfixing and uh, mesmerizing moments I think in any film. Yeah, she's she's so great, and I mean it plays it so well. So, what did you think watching, seeing the the severe difference in footage? Because well, one of the big things with it that you know when they discovered, I, I guess I should say so. Uh, in 2010, in a film vault in Argentina, in the uh, collection of a uh, Argentinian film critic uh, named uh, Peña Rodriguez, the and, and uh, when they were going through his collection, they found this 16 millimeter print, a safety print of Metropolis that was much longer than any previous versions, and and that's kind of when they realized that they had the original cut. Of, of Metropolis with about uh, 25 extra minutes that had it's never incredible. been seen since 1927, um, which which is just the most incredible discovery in in terms of like cinematic uh, revival uh, of a film that's so big. Obviously, yeah. like whole whole films that were thought lost have been you know rediscovered over time many times, but for something that was kind of as titanic and influential as metropolis to find a whole like fourth of the film you know was still out there just to find almost the entire rest of it which had been missing for almost 90 years at that point is uh just uh, shocking and incredible uh and but one of the downsides to it is that it is a incredibly rough (laughs) print that they found like it's the footage is really like scratched to hell and uh, it's it's also smaller in size slightly because it's on a 16 millimeter print. Right. So when you watch the restored version, there is a very clear distinction between what is from the original camera negative, which which they have still and have done lots of restorations from, and the rest of the footage that was found in Argentina. So yeah. you can you can very clearly see what was missing and what was found, which in its own way is a very interesting document of how the film was preserved prior to this most recent restoration. Yeah. I'm fascinated by having that separation where you're able to uh, evidently see what was, what the movie was and what it is now and what that means is a difference. And I think it's very special that it is different actually. And, and it ranges from like, like one or two second clips within a scene just being cut presumably for time purposes to entire subplots that were excised from the film yeah. for, for running time reasons. Cause one of the, the big deals was that when it was sent over to America initially, uh, they, they cut the film to hell to, to make it fit, you know, for a shorter runtime for theaters. And then they used the precedent of that for every subsequent release, particularly when it did not do successfully in Germany at first. And so they cut it down again uh, based on the American cuts to uh, try and you know make make a profit off it more to adjust because uh, <laughs> it, uh, I don't know if you saw how much it's um, uh, budget wise uh, it went way over budget initially it was uh, and ended up uh, costing a total of uh, five point three Reichsmarks and made seventy five thousand wow okay <laughs> which is an insane flop that is an insane loss of money it was the most expensive film made at Ufa at the time and just lost an even more insane amount. It was a huge, huge, huge flop. Could you imagine the people that did see it and did enjoy it at first though, that, that had never seen anything like this, or is it too big? Is it, is it too different from anything they ever saw for it to actually break through at that moment? Um, Maybe we needed time and its influence to actually be able to enjoy it. 
Yeah, it's 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 hard to say because watching it now, I, I you can't help but I think be bowled over by it visually. Like even with everything that was being produced at the time, especially out of out of the Weimar period in, in Germany, you know, they were just churning out, you know, cinematic expressive masterpieces one after another. Uh and, and something like, you know, the Doctor of you know, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was a huge sensation, you know, stateside and, you know, internationally and in, you know, Germany when it came out in nineteen twenty, but something like this didn't resonate. You know, it's hard to see why exactly, because they're both so, you know, uh, you know, expressive and, and you know, singular. Uh, but I know, I know one of the chief complaints with it at the time is similar to nowadays, where, again, moralistically, it's very simplistic. Um, but I, I don't know otherwise, because it's, it's otherwise quite triumphant. Uh, but, yeah, as, as far as for seeing the, the footage, did you have any trouble with uh, witnessing it and seeing the the difference in, in footage there or the kind of like I, I remember the first time watching it, it it was a little bit of an adjustment period to see it hop back and forth between this low quality footage and the pristine quality but it was not hard you know to kind of take in after just a little bit again I, I really cut my teeth with westerns from VHS transfer <laughs> copies which are just like a scrambled mess I, I watched like Cutthroat's 9 and the, uh, it was barely a movie you know <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't mind that stuff. And I was sick. I, I didn't care. I, I was barely mm-hmm. aware of what was happening other than just being bowled over by like this uh, big expression of the movie. I knew we should talk about it anyway. Um, I, I mean, I guess my question for you is uh, beloved musician Giovanni Giorgio Morador, um, the father of disco, as he's popularly known. He did like mm-hmm. uh, fantastic tracks for like Scarface and... Um, childhood calvin favorite the never-ending story um and the best daft punks daft punk song there is um which is just about him and uh basically says his name and says what uh what people call him which is giovanni um morador or something like that giorgio yeah giorgio moroder yeah so in in 1984 he got his hands on the rights for the film and conducted a, a new restoration with uh, all of the footage that was available at the time. And for for a bit, it was considered the most complete version of Metropolis in existence. But it, it was not a traditional restoration by any means. Um, <laughs> Is it strange? Uh, Is it just the music, would you say? No, no, there's a lot, um, particularly when you have the context of the complete version. And that's what makes it kind of complicated and interesting to assess so um, for for one thing, the obvious thing to state is that the, the score is very, very different. Um, you know, it's an experimental modern pop score. Uh, it has like some, Freddie Mercury on it. Yeah, there's like there's a track that Freddie Mercury sings. Pat Benatar does a song. Loverboy <laughs> does a song at one point, like with like actual lyrics and, and such in it, which is interesting and experimental. But it's also got like this industrial, more environmental themed sections and whatnot, but it's inconsistent in how it implements these, you know, for some stretches, it's just like environmental sounds, you know, getting this kind of like industrial feel to the setting and stuff, which in concept is very appropriate. You know, it's an interesting way to approach, uh, you know, a, a, you know, interpretation of Metropolis, you know, particularly with its futuristic themes and such. But then you have stretches where it is just like, you know, heavy guitar riffs and such, you know, uh, and it, it kind of just feels very like, single and simplistic in in how it's you know appropriate to the music and then you also have the parts where it's like 
just the, the really like inane lyrics. Like I, I had such a problem with the lyrics because like they're they're the the lover boy song uh kind of occurs when the city when when you've got the them running around kind of inciting, you know, riot and stuff and like the, the workers are gonna burn down the, the city and flood it and all that. And it's just like this very like simplistic bass rhythm like they dun, 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 dun. and then like occasionally they'll have like this chorus where they're just like destruction dun, 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 dun. and it's just so obvious. <laughs> it's it, it, it and I'm like you took the really simplistic themes of the film and you made it even more blunt. It's like the same thing when they first introduced the the uh, robot, you know, Maria, uh, and, and and you ever come out, and she just has like this recurring theme, and it's basically just like the repeated lyrics of "Here she comes, here she comes," and and that's like the main thing. It's like there's there's nothing further beyond that. And it, wow. Well, so, I think I think like the magic of the silent films, you don't have to say it. I mean, you could visually just imply the obviousness. I think I think that works better. And, and just so much of it feels like it wasn't composed for the film. Like the the soundtrack starts and stops a lot. You know, it's like this song is done. Wait a couple seconds, fade in the next song. It doesn't feel fluid, or often doesn't feel matched tonally to what's going on. It just you know it feels like you had this idea and composed it separately for the film, not um, you know with uh, the, the visuals in mind itself. Whereas if you compare it to the actual orchestral score, it's very much dictated by what's happening and the emotion of a sequence. And it's not just, again, it's, it's very like committed. The, the Moroder score is very committed to this kind of like, you know, singular sense of uh, a rhythm or, or a beat that it's established there. And it just kind of stays on that for the majority of scenes. It doesn't break in terms of its rhythm very often. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm still interested in kind of seeing it because I like Marauder so much. And I just think it's a weird thing that exists. If yeah, it, and it definitely is that. Uh, <laughs> again, there's there's lots of. Uh, I think especially after you've seen the full version, it, it feels very weird. Like again, for for a film that I fell so hardly in love with, head over heels for. I almost like detested watching it in some stretches, like the same visuals that blew me away just kind of like had no effect on me watching with this score, particularly because so much of it is truncated. And that's the other huge caveat with this is that the film is so much less the film. The, the Marauder version is not even 90 minutes long, which, <laughs> oh, yeah. which is a, a huge, you know, departure from the two hour, two and a half hour runtime of the complete version here. Some of that, again, is because a lot of the footage just did not exist in 1984. You know, we didn't have that. So, you know, uh, the, the various subplots and stuff, you know, are, are, are missing from it. But also it's just uh, truncated because of how, uh, you know, the, the footage is sped up a bit. Yeah. You know, uh, so that, that, you know, gets the runtime smaller down too. Well, it's effectively uh, a Evangelion rebuild. <laughs> it's just, it's very weird to watch knowing what's, what's kind of missing and what you're getting there because the whole film feels so expedited. Yeah. Uh, the, the, and the intertitle replacements, like the, the, the dialogue, which was very well crafted, you know, from, uh, Thea von Harbo's, uh, book, you know, originally, like it's got a very clear, you know, identity with the, the characters there. And it feels like things, whereas it's uh, the dialogue in the Marauder version is just so like ham fisted. Um, you know, like, like there, there's a scene where, where Freighter approaches, uh, you know, his father, 
uh, saying, and he's like, oh, he's like, father, why do we treat the workers so terribly? <laughs> it's just, again, it like, it blunts everything. Like, it's just so much more like, like eloquently and logically stated, you know, in, in the actual translations that they were able to, to eventually get from the, uh, the archives. <laughs> I actually timed it, and I, and I timed the difference at one point to see because it just felt like everything was so rushed. Partly because, again, of the missing footage, but partly, you know, just because of how it, it felt, you know, condensed to get through. And there's the scene where um, Fredor first witnesses Maria when, when she comes to the, the big, you know, garden, you know, area they have in the, you know, in the city and such. And he kind of, you know, witnesses for the first time is just entirely, like, taken in by her beauty and elegance and such. And um, it's there's about a minute of difference of film between the two versions, like a minute of in the complete version, an extra minute of watching Freighter just kind of like take her in, contemplate this this experience he had just witnessing her and, you know, you know, just really like falling in love, like you see, you seeing him being transfixed by her, whereas in the Marauder version, it's like she's there, bam, she gets escorted out very quickly and then right off like like Fader's just like hey who was that as he walks right past <laughs> past the guy and out the door and it's like there there's no time for contemplation of emotion there just <laughs> it just zips right through it and that's what the whole film felt like with every one of those scenes like everything just felt like it went by like extremely fast like the tower of babylon story you know where it's like this big epic you know it, you know interlude in there where you kind of get this sense of you know the history and whatnot and the parallel it just goes by really quick it feels like a very quick anecdote <laughs> Um, you know, the whole dance sequence, like there's a few missing shots comparatively, like you can see in the complete version where there's a couple of things that was put back in by the, the found footage in Argentina. But overall, it just feels like it's over, you know, in, in like a minute and a half in the Marauder version. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad you got to watch it, though. I think that's an interesting context. I, I, I'm very glad I saw it because I've always been curious about it. Uh, but I, I, I watched it and I'm like, man, if this was my first experience with it, which I'm sure it was for a lot of people, because this was like, the, the 80s, most right? complete yeah. version for a long time. Uh, I just, I don't think I would have resonated with the film and that, and that, uh, you know, also confirms for me just how impressive the legacy of the film is, is that it's, you know, it's been able to achieve this iconic and influential status despite existing in a, in a marred, you know, and kind of like Frankenstein like state throughout the majority of its existence, uh, that the visuals were just that powerful and that influential. Again, like you can see it and stuff from like Blade Runner and Akira to star Wars, you know, obviously like that's one of the, the huge, you know, visual signifiers there with the, the robot and, you know, and stuff. Yeah. It just really set the template for, for, you know, futuristic sci-fi for, uh, ever, I would say, <laughs> I can't. You I can't, can't really, really go back on that because everything influenced by sci-fi will naturally have a lot of this in it. Yeah, and it just feels so so Titanic in in comparison. Still, Influence and again, still Titanic. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and it, and it still holds up as, as you said there, but you know, it, it, obviously with how we and lots of other people resonate with it. But it's interesting to see how it resonated with others as well. Like, like I said, the the Marauder version was a huge turnoff for me. <laughs> I bet. Aside from like its its historical context, and I was I was kind of shocked and and like very <laughs> upset that like something that resonated so much with me one way could make me like repulsed with just you know tweaks like like some missing things. A, a slightly different but interesting presentation. And, and that's the thing I want to emphasize as well is that 
I'm not against the concept of the Marauder version, like a reinterpretation of a silent film with a modern score. That's an interesting, you know, aspect of, of the medium that isn't necessarily capitalized on enough or figured out well enough, but that the opportunity is more than there for like this transformation and remixing of this art. You can't do that with, um, you know, sound films really in the same way. And, and Metropolis seems like a really great and rife example for it and one of the more prominent ones. But uh, seeing this version and being so like put off by it, like I, I was very perplexed, you know, by how a film I could, I could really absolutely love and be transfixed by and awed by in one context just entirely wouldn't work in another. It's and interesting it, just in that case that, that a film could be so, so different. Yeah. And, and again, just, I think a testament to how, uh, the 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 very like like flexible and evolving state of art you know over the years and again because the, the the thing to remember you know still is that this version of Metropolis that I love so much has only existed for a decade um and and that's shocking you know to <laughs> yeah, me. but again and, and and I've seen it in other contexts as well with like a you know with the uh, live organ accompaniment and been just as you know transfixed by it certainly so. It's it's not just this one presentation that's you know like like uh, you know all all powerful I guess. Well, it's a pretty mammoth movie. Did you have any closing thoughts about it? I'm uh, just <laughs> I, I guess I could I could talk a whole lot about the film in in so many ways, but I feel like uh, you know I've covered a lot of it thoroughly that I really love um, the the restoration of the subplots in the film. I think adds so much context, you know, uh, particularly in motivation for a lot of the characters. Uh, the backstory with Hell is super important, and that they ever excise that is, you know, uh, shocking and, and, you know, kind of unbelievable because it's very important for informing the background of the characters. Uh, and, and it's just really interesting to see how the, the intertitles and dialogue uh, the different presentation, you know, really informs and cements those characters and helps the film land better and, and, and its themes make sense as opposed to being a more broad deal. Again, like the critiques of it being really like broad and simplistic made way more sense to me seeing it in, in that kind of more butchered or, or, or blunted context with the Marauder version. I'm like, okay, like the issues people have with the film make way more sense when when you see it in a in a less... Deconstructed that way, yeah. Yeah, again, so so the text of it, and, and it goes to show that, you know, sometimes that, that informative context in the inner titles is just as important as the visuals, because as magnificent as they can be, they can be really dull if if you don't have a, a you know proper story to frame around. And I think the fact that it existed as a novel beforehand and it was sketched out with a more thorough realization of the world and characters was very integral to making that translate to the screen then, because again, you know, uh, it's got all the grandeur and scale, but uh, a lot of the times that can feel hollow if it's not backed by, you know, characters you can really believe and sink your teeth into. And I think all of the characters here, you know, are, are really thoroughly done. Even the smaller characters, you know, that were kind of excised from from the film, you know, with the subplots and stuff. I, I think they add a, a lot of nuance. And mo- most importantly, they add a, an important element of pacing to the story, breaking up the main narrative so it feels like things are actually developing. Because like in the Marauder version, I remember it, it goes pretty quickly from Transformation Maria to Rang and Maria, you know, uh, kind of struggling thereafter. And it doesn't feel like any time is, you know, gone in between. So uh, everything that's in the restored version, I think, is wholly necessary and really reinforms why it's such a masterpiece. 
my take should be pretty simple that if you watch movies, you should watch this one so you can see movies more intentionally. And I think it's important building block for everything that you've already seen. So uh, go see this. Yeah, it's just it's really triumphant, visually incredible, a a you know masterful demonstration of the medium and its accomplishment. And again, like just a a, a maverick of techniques at that time period. Um, and and I think just one of the greatest films I've I've ever seen, and something I love coming back to. This is probably my my favorite film to put on in in the background. Uh, there, there's lots of times where I've just thrown it on when people are coming over and then they, they get really involved in it just because visually, yeah. even if they're not paying attention to the, the text or anything, visually it just becomes so influential and, and magnificent. I think it's not going to become like a personal favorite of mine and one that I'm like emotionally attached to or personally based a lot of my taste around, but I think it's so important for me to have seen it and um, to watch any other sci-fi and to be able to evaluate it and uh, whole, a whole history of film and genre really encapsulated in this one monolithic movie. So, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy. glad still that you, you decided to finally jump into it and it did resonate with you so strongly. I'm, I'm afraid of the one day I find someone who's like, <laughs> ah, that's whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, did fine. you watch, did you watch the full version? I, that, that's, that'd probably be my answer. <laughs> I just don't think that's a possible outcome. I think you'll have a strong reaction if you've paid attention to the movie and you've watched other movies. I don't see how you could just have a, a whatever reaction, at least it. It's at least great, I think. I don't know. I'm not really interested in, you know, <laughs> I just want to enjoy out. the movie. I want, yeah. I want to be in awe of it at all times. I don't want anyone to challenge me on this. <laughs> this is, this was such a special and uh, kind of singular experience to have the first time watching it and then seeing it in, you know, a theater was its own, you know, m- magnificent, you know, moment. Uh, and then really interesting again, being like very put off by it in another version. I, I have such a, a rich history with the film in just the few years that I've spent with it. Um, and, and I only hope to, to grow that again. Like I, I will continue to come back to this, this masterful display of, of, uh, cinematic grandeur. That's how I feel that happy death day to you. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to get to that one soon then maybe maybe (laughs) all right thanks again cal i'm so glad that we're back uh and we'll be back again next week uh finally we'll get to the film we've been alluding to for for months and that we've been wanting to it is now um we said it before i did we i don't know if we did i'm afraid to say so because something might happen again let's say it anyway we're going to talk about point break finally (laughs) yes yes we've said we were going to do it before yes things got in the way and we still are yes we're supposed to see it together this last week then something got in the way as well but we're going to make it happen we're going to climb this mountain and we're going to do it we'll make a point of it yeah, a point, point break, break of it. And, uh, yeah, stay tuned to the site. We have a lot on uh, Japan cuts and Fantasia finishing up, um, new reviews from Vaughn and a ranking the monsters still happening. So a lot yep. happening. Yeah, what, what are you guys covering this next week? I don't know. We've got uh, two Gameras. Oh, okay, Return of Gamera. Versus movies? It'll be like our first dive into Versus movies. Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I get a hint? Because I know you've been hesitant about Versus movies. Are you? You're good with these because Gamera, I think, is going to tie you over. I'll have, a, I'll have a sweet anecdote about Ezra watching one and realizing that she loves the big monster movies and how that put us on to like Jurassic Parks. And then the other one I really like because it's about Gamera and children again. So that's Great. what I want from those. This sounds like an exciting episode. I'm, I'm, I'll be very interested to listen to it. 
All right. In the meantime, thanks everyone for tuning in. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pablo Sabrogan, as well as, of course, Ranking the Monsters, as we just recently talked about. Both are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we will see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Hashimete